Give them Flu's online gift currency. It's just like money. You send it by email, they spend it at some of the web's coolest stores, and you come out hip and money. People, we are gathered here to remember the dearly departed companies of the dot-com boom. Flu's.com, that's Flu's with a Z, left this earthly realm in 2001. Cut down too soon, despite being basically like Chuck E. Cheese tickets for adults. It leaves behind Whoopi Goldberg, who got paid in Flu's stock, which ended up being just as worthless as Flu's themselves. Webvan was a grocery delivery service. It departed this world in 2001 after a short bout with bankruptcy. According to Wikipedia, Webvan leaves behind, quote, thousands of colored plastic shipping tubs now used for household storage. Friends remember Cosmo.com as the fastest delivery service with the brightest orange bags. And it was fast as hell until its untimely liquidation in 2001. Today, I'm overseeing some deliveries for Pets.com, purely in an advisory role. Pets.com, a truly tragic case. It leaves behind a beloved sock puppet. Oh my God, wait, what is that I hear? It's a miracle. They've been reincarnated. Webvan, the grocery delivery service, has come back into this earthly realm as Fresh Direct, Instacart, Peapod, you name it. So just try these apples and this salmon and these tomatoes. Get it all delivered today. And Cosmo looks a whole lot like Postmates. Postmates, get anything delivered. Well, almost anything. And good old Pets.com has resurrected as Chewy.com. Tired of lugging around big bags of pet food and litter? Get it delivered. Hi, I'm Julia Furlan, and this is Go For Broke. All season long, we've been talking about the irrational exuberance that led to the dot-com bubble and the fallout that came after it. The mid and late 90s was a gold rush for internet startups at a time when the world and how we lived was changing. A lot of startups failed because of their own shortcomings, but in this episode, we're going to talk about just how many ideas that started in the dot-com era were actually good. They were just a little ahead of their time. But if the ideas of the dot-com bubble are back, is the hype happening all over again, and are we in a bubble right now? When people go for broke, does that always create a bubble that's eventually going to pop? To start, let's talk about Chewy.com, the pet retail site now appreciated by cats and dogs all across the U.S. The immediate assumption would be, oh, here's another Pets.com. Why is this going to work any better than Pets.com? That's Miriam Gottfried. She covers private equity for the Wall Street Journal. She says this about Pets.com. You know, e-commerce was really new then. um, And, you know, the company was really never able to amass the consumer base necessary to cover its fixed costs. You know, when Pets.com was trying to ship 50-pound bags of dog food, there weren't really that many people who bought things online. So it was like sending 50-pound bags of dog food to like one or two people, and that's really not a good business. But while Pets.com could not sustain and grow a pet supply internet company in the 90s, Chewy.com is now a $25 billion business. Their market cap is like through the roof. They're doing really well. (laughs) They've grown tremendously. 
Chewy was able to learn from some of the mistakes of the pet's business model. One big improvement, Miriam says, was getting their customers to subscribe for regular deliveries. Major reason why Chewy is a better business than most e-commerce companies. I think it cannot be overstated how important the predictability of the recurring revenue from these auto subscription purchases is for the business. Automatic subscription revenue. It's such a simple idea, but it was a fundamental change that made the entire business more stable. Chewy came up in a different world than pets. By the time Chewy launched in 2011, a lot of the problems that existed for Pets.com, complicated infrastructure challenges like servers and shipping logistics, those things were figured out. Plus, most people now have high-speed internet. And not only are they comfortable shopping online, they're addicted to their tiny pocket computers. I know you might be like, oh, sure, big whoop, infrastructure week or whatever. But I'm telling you that the reason that we have the Chewies and the Fresh Directs is thanks to the folks who worked on these big problems way back in the dot-com boom. Rana Faruhar is the economic analyst and financial expert extraordinaire that we've heard from throughout the series. And there are three big things you have to understand about the infrastructure that came out of the dot-com era. The first one, Rana says, is the laying of broadband cable. What was amazing that was built during that time was the fiber, because that really set the stage for everything that came next. You know, you couldn't have Uber, you couldn't have Facebook, you couldn't have all these companies being just you know, global. You couldn't have Zoom. You really couldn't have the consumer internet as we know it. All this cable connecting offices and homes around the world literally made it possible for the faster internet and the economy that came after it to happen. And here's the second thing that had to exist so that e-commerce companies could thrive. Warehouses. Hi, I'm Jason Smith, and I basically did everything in the building in Greenwood, Indiana for Pets.com. In 1999, Jason was the first person to walk into the brand new Pets.com warehouse. In true dot-com fashion, the entire operation was flying by the seat of their pants. We don't know what we're doing. It's a brand new, brand new company. None of us in the core nine group had ever started up a warehouse before. So, of course, we're looking at each other like, what the hell is going on? According to Jason, there wasn't much around when Pets decided to open their warehouse. There was no other warehouses out there. It was all farmland. There was nothing around except for a a truck stop. Now you've got this X amount of square foot building that's in a prime location. It's right off of I-65. So truckers can get in and out of it really, really easy. We're in the Midwest, so we can pretty much ship everywhere. The Pets Warehouse lasted just 11 months, and Jason was there to shut it down. In the 20 years since, though, he's watched that area just explode. Oh, my gosh. That place is booming. Oh, there's all kinds of, of, of buildings and warehouses. If you were to go over there now, it's, it's unrecognizable between the late 90s and now. There's just so much e-commerce out there. Warehouse hubs that are easy for trucks to access and in places with lots of space and low property values are now key to the e-commerce industry. If you like your two-day shipping... You can thank Indiana. The third bit of infrastructure we're going to talk about today is invisible. Meaning the website or app that you use to order something online today, it might be built using code that was written in the dot-com era. 
what happened was people started working together across all these different dot coms that had gotten funded and gotten all this money. And they started building either inexpensive or in some cases free open source versions of all this stuff. That's Anil Dash. You know him. He's our editorial consultant for the series and the CEO of the tech company Glitch. Anil says that the early internet was created by people who would use and build from each other's code for free. That's the beauty of open source. And the default was you were using free open source software to build the infrastructure for your website. And interestingly, they were all using a lot of the same code. It's like if you were all, you know, if all of you were stores lined up in the same mall, you might all pay one guy to, you know, clean all the benches off in front of it, right? And so that was this really interesting sort of collaborative effort. Just like the physical warehouses and cables that were left by the dot-coms, open source code written during the dot-com bubble would find a second life. Even after all of the dot-coms went bust and, and all that, the companies evaporated, the technology persisted because it had been bigger and broader than any one of those companies. And then it continued to evolve. And in some cases, that code that was shared between the dot-com companies is still behind the scenes today for helping to serve up a website, helping to provide a database that stores your information, helping to be the thing that makes the information get delivered to your web browser faster. But of all the things the dot-com era left behind, the most influential may be the way that tech became the center of our universe. I think that moment around the late 90s, early 2000s tech world um, is when the sort of modern myth of technology got invented. The entire way we think about tech companies and their place in the world started then. This was the time when the celebrity CEO came into being. All that mythology about, I made this in my garage, or I wrote the code on my dorm room window, the way they flipped that into billion-dollar companies, this was when that started. Now we take for granted that a CEO of a tech company is going to be walking around on a stage in their sneakers in a huge auditorium telling us about their next product. But I think in a lot of ways, they were almost blowing up the, the 20th century version of what a company was and what a CEO was and what a founder was. And, you know, the previous stories had literally been, you know, Henry Ford and, and this sort of like very industrial age kind of thing. It was such a different world in terms of like you were trying to be part of culture. This was also the time when tech startups began to think about their relationship to the larger world. There was this invention in the dot-com era that a website and later an app were going to be things that revealed culture and the world to you. That this was going to be a thing that a company was going to do, not just that they were going to provide the service that you were paying for. Apple at the core, its core value is that we believe that people with passion can change the world for the better. That's what we believe. But the idea of like, we're changing the world by doing this, we're saving the world by doing this was, um, was unironic at that point. You ask, we have a lot of employees at Google. You're working because you want to change the world. You want to make it better. And it's funny because it's just this unique intersection, this moment in culture where you could be so earnest as to say you want to change the world, but also so egotistical as to think that your weird trifling crap was going to do it. We've got an incredible opportunity to try to uphold a legacy in Silicon Valley of changing the world. Since then, it's just become a, 
almost a reflexive tick, like a nervous habit. Like you just have to say we're changing the world all the time or else you're not really a startup. The dot-com era marked the beginning of the modern internet, and it laid the foundation for the tech companies that have changed the way we live today. But if history is repeating itself, does that mean we're in a bubble like right now? A bubble that's headed for a big old pop? And what does that say about us if we are? Hey, it's Tom Warren, senior editor at The Verge here. Microsoft is in an era-defining moment. It's betting on AI as the future of work, its Xbox business is going through transformational changes, and the Mac versus PC war is about to be back on. So I'm launching a newsletter called Notepad. It'll be your inside guide to all those changes and beyond. From details on the next Xbox to that one time every Microsoft employee named Michael appeared on a mysterious email list. Whatever is happening at Microsoft, you'll be able to read about it first in Notepad every Thursday. Go subscribe now at theverge.com forward slash notepad. Hi, welcome back to Go For Broke. I'm Julia Furlan. We've seen how a lot of the business ideas from the dot-com era are back and bigger than ever, for better or worse. Let's go back to Chewy. Chewy has the loyal and growing subscriber base Pets.com could never get. But here's where things start to feel eerily familiar. Despite actually having customers, Chewy doesn't bring in a profit. Here's Wall Street Journal reporter Miriam Gottfried again. They've decided not to become profitable in favor of growing. Um, And basically what it is, is you need to continue to market to people, um, to new customers. And when you're adding new customers, you give them a discount um, when you're chewy. And so that eats into the profitability. But as you grow your customer base, those people become loyal customers. And then there are fewer people that you have to give a discount to. Many startup companies today, like Airbnb, Uber, Blue Apron, they all follow this model. Grow as fast as you can and be the category killer. Profits be damned. Does that ring any bells? I asked Rana Faruhar about this. Is that the same model that we saw in the 90s.com bubble? Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And But the, you know, the problem, of course, is eventually um, the markets, particularly once you go public, markets do want to see profitability and growth. And that becomes more and more true as the bubble gets bigger, you know, and and that happened towards the very end before the crash. You started seeing investors talk about, well, you know, how long is it going to take to get to profitability? Um, you know, when are you going to be in the black? Um, and that's that's ever more true now. And like the startups of the dot com era, these companies are worth a lot of money. But we're talking billions, not multi-millions like we saw in the late 90s. We built Uber to deliver rides at the touch of a button. And in doing so, we changed the world. So Uber is a very interesting case study because, you know, it was one of the Silicon Valley unicorns, um, companies that were um, valued at over a billion dollars before IPO. Before its IPO in May of 2019, investment banks like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs told Uber they would take it public at an astronomical valuation, $120 billion to be exact. As we've seen, Uber is really good at going into a city or country and completely upending transportation. And for years, that was really attractive to investors. 
I mean, like the, the idea is you raise a ton of money. You raise as much money as you can. You go into every possible market that you can all over the world and you just grab turf. Basically, you try and underprice and undercut every competitor, be it a traditional taxi firm or another ride sharing firm. And so Uber comes in, they undercut prices. They're actually not making any money, but nobody's worried about that right now. Um, but eventually reality starts to catch up. And the reality was Uber's growth was never going to be smooth sailing. It started hitting roadblocks like government regulations and increasing competition. In 2020, Uber spent millions of dollars in California to pass Proposition 22 so that it could classify its drivers as contractors, not employees. But Uber's labor problems are not going away anytime soon. In the weeks leading up to its IPO, Uber saw that its investors were getting skittish and cut its IPO asking price in half. And at the end of its first day of trading, Uber didn't even reach that mark. It was the biggest dollar loss for a company on IPO day ever. So right now in 2020, let's take a peek at what we've got happening. Puffed up valuations, check. Disappointing IPOs, check. Companies foregoing profits, also check. Whoa, where are we? Oh my God, Rana, are we in a bubble? I have a complicated answer um, because it's a complicated time. A bubble happens when the value of stocks in a particular sector um, become really, really decoupled from what is actually happening on the ground. Rana's talking about when the stock price and valuation of a bunch of companies goes way above their actual worth. Like when Pets.com got millions of dollars of investments despite the fact that no one was ordering pet food on the internet in 1999. But the reason pets got all that investment is because they were trying to build something new. When people really go for it, a lot of cool shit happens. Bubbles always happen in periods of great innovation. And it's tempting to want to invest in that innovation. But it's not always clear which company is going to succeed. Something Warren Buffett once told me was um, one of the reasons why he never invests in technology or historically hasn't invested a lot in technology is that it's easy to see that a certain technology is going to change the world. It's very, very difficult to see which companies are going to win. So he gives, for example, the shift from horse and buggy to the automotive industry is the classic example. We all knew at some point, or everybody back then knew at some point, Henry Ford certainly knew, that the horse and buggy was out, the car was in. But around the time that Ford Motors was starting, there were about 500 automotive companies that you could have invested in. Which one of those was right? Tough to know. And that's exactly what happened in the 90s. You know what? I'd say the majority of us don't have Warren Buffett's investment skills. So when we go looking for the next big thing, we might invest in a whole bunch of not so good companies and overpay for that opportunity. And Rana says that's what's happening now. You know, you have some very smart seed investors that are, you know, put in a few million and they're seeing the value of the company go up into the hundreds of uh, millions or even billions. And then you have the really stupid money coming in at the end. So that's the classic bubble to me. Leading up to 2020, a lot of economists believe that we were in a period of inflated corporate valuations and dubious IPOs and that we were headed for a crash. But then the pandemic hit and stole all of our plans, every single one. I certainly, prior to COVID, thought that we were 
um, in for a fall in tech shares in particular, because there was a record amount of corporate debt out there. Um, those companies had been bid up to levels that felt completely unsustainable to me. But then COVID happens and you get uh, an almost overnight shift to digital. COVID-19 has increased our reliance on tech companies. That Zoom school your kids are doing and all those little Instacart deliveries mean that we're relying on tech companies in a different way. And those companies have been rewarded. The big tech shares are up something like 45% this year. I mean, it's an incredible, incredible run. But if you look at the overall market, the market itself is not really doing all that well. It's the tech shares that are driving it. I mean, tech is now... It's, you know, it, it, since the pandemic, it's been anywhere from a quarter to 40% of the market itself. And sure, a lot of that 40% is big tech like Amazon and Google. But what about the littler, scrappier upstarts? The apps and dot-coms of today that were just going about their business, maybe getting by, maybe not. And suddenly COVID shows up and opens up a whole new world of tech possibility. You know what they did? They pounced. Instacart, for example, added 300,000 gig workers in the months after the country went into lockdown. In April 2020, it posted its first ever profit. Even in the bleak, shut-in world of shelter-in-place, this company is taking its chance. Which must be weird, right? For these startups whose business models plunked them into a land of opportunity known as COVID. Watching the profits surge, knowing the human suffering that's underneath their rise. And I really, really hope that they're asking themselves some pretty big questions. Like, what happens to all these gig workers without benefits who are now essential workers? And is this explosion of growth sustainable in the long term? The choices they make now will reverberate across the entire economy. And yet, we can't help ourselves. Maybe especially when our future feels so wildly uncertain, we look to tech to come up with a big idea, wrap a business model around it, and you know what that is? That's a big old bubble burrito, my friends. Have you ever paid a toll without slowing down? Bought concert tickets from a cash machine. Back in the 90s, AT&T ran an advertising campaign with the tagline, You Will. In the ads, there are a bunch of little scenarios playing out about the technologies that we'd be using in the future. Anil Dash remembers these ads very well. The one that I remember very distinctly seeing the commercial was sending a fax from the beach. And I love it because it perfectly epitomizes the ways that people get the future both right and wrong, right? So like instant connectivity anywhere that you could work from the beach, absolutely correct. The idea that a fax would be relevant to that, absolutely wrong. And, and, it, and, and it just shows the sort of limitations of imagination of like what we think we're going to hold on to versus what we think we're going to throw away. There's another one that I really appreciated where a mom ducks into a phone booth on her commute to quote unquote, put her baby to bed over a video payphone. You know what? You got to hand it to them. It's surprising how really right and really wrong these tiny details are. So many of the dot-com ideas, the first wave especially, were just obvious things that were good. 
do I want to be able to read this book instantly? Yeah. Do I want to be able to get some ice cream delivered because I went through a breakup? Hell yeah. Do I want to be able to watch a movie right now? Yes. Like those are all really great human desires. But if the dot-com ideas are still valid today, so are the dangers. I asked Anil what lessons tech entrepreneurs today should draw from the dot-com era. I think the first and most important is show me the money. How is this company or this product going to make money? And if they succeed, what will happen to the world when they do? Like that is the most important question. And I think it was so unimaginable at the dot-com era to think that you would ever have a trillion dollar e-commerce company that you didn't worry about the risks of that because that would be an irrational thought to think it was even possible. And so, you know, I don't fault anybody for not predicting an un- extraordinarily unlikely thing happening. We've spent so much of the season on the risks of failing, but there's also the flip side of that risk. And this is something I think we're all going to recognize about the moment we're living in now. What happens when a company becomes a truly outsized success and genuinely does change the world? What happens if they succeed? And what will the world be like if they do succeed? I think those are those are some of the key questions that come from there. The other lessons are just, um, you know, uh, human impulses don't actually change that much. When you go for broke and succeed, you can invent the internet, revolutionize e-commerce, or come up with a marketing idea that propels you to the biggest stage on the planet. There are a lot of silly things that are easy to focus on about the dot-com bubble. I mean, I know all of you are holding on to your flus with the grip of life, just like I am. But like Anil said, it's our human impulses that drive all of this. Our need to consume, to connect, to create. We just can't escape them. So I had to ask Rana, are bubbles just inevitable? Yes, totally. I think so. It comes down to this idea from an economist named Robert Schiller called narrative economics. People get excited about something. Pets.com. You tell your mom, you tell your aunt, oh my God, like, you know, the soccer at the soccer games. Did you see that? I'm buying Pets.com. Like, narratives start. A narrative is a story of how the world is or how we want it to be. And I'm going to ask you straight up, What are the things you're talking about right now? What was the big idea you told your friend on the stoop over socially distanced cocktails that really excited you? What feature did you have to explain to your auntie so that she could get on the family Zoom call? Each of us, even you listening to this, you may not be writing code or starting a new business, but you are telling the stories that bring life to these companies and breathe air into a bubble. In the dot-com era, after all of the bubbliciousness went away, It wasn't just a story about the stock market or the tech world. It was about our optimistic, hubristic, and totally messy human species doing what we've always done. Going for broke. Archival clips from this episode were from TED Talks and CNBC's Mad Money. We want to give a shout out to a few people who've helped bring this season to life. It really takes a village. Marika Baldamberg, Megan Cetera, Alex Medina, and the whole Vox Design team, Gina May, Jessica Moy, Dan O'Sullivan, Brandon Santos, Lissa Soap, and Ode White. Special thanks to Epic's Joshua Behrman. 
Charlotte Silver is our associate producer. Our consulting producer is Melise Tusseray. Go For Broke is produced by Bridget Armstrong, Megan Kinane, and Zach Mack. Isaac Kestenbaum is our editor. Anil Dash is our editorial consultant for the series. Nathan Miller engineered this episode. Gautam Trikishan composed our theme song. Art Chung is our showrunner. Our executive producer is Nishat Kurwa. Go For Broke is a production of Epic and the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you liked this episode, if you liked this season, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It really matters. Tell your friends, tell your people. I'm Julia Furlan, and sincerely, thank you so much for spending time with me this season. It's been a real blast.